Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's very good of you to come out on such a night. I think the only thing we can say about this winter is that so far we haven't had any snow, but we've had about everything else. I must remind you, too, that if you are not on John's mailing list, monthly mailing list, if you would like to receive a note of the meeting and some usually very informative subject matter, then please give in your name so that John can send you the monthly letter. We didn't need much reminding this month because of Father Thwaite, our speaker tonight, has been here before, and um, we all look forward to his return. John said he hadn't put anything down on here for me about Father Thwaite because he didn't know much about him. <laughs> but the thing is, I think that so many initiatives have come from Father Thwaites, so many that um, people would hardly connect with him because he tends to urge and um, gets things done in his own quiet way, so many things. And I don't think he would um, be very pleased if I recounted them here, but I would, I would just mention one uh, initiative which has been such a success and has brought such a lot of joy and succor to all of us and that is the Rosary Rally which has now been going for two years and seems to be building a success which we hope will become even more next year. So that's the only thing I would mention. I think perhaps mention of the Rosary would be the one thing that Father Thwaites would forgive me for mentioning. So without more ado, I introduce our speaker tonight who will speak on Mysterium Fidei, Father Hugh Thwaites. It's, provi it's providential that it's the Feast of St. Thomas Aquinas today when the Pope instituted the Feast of Corpus Christi. He asked St. Thomas to compose the Mass and write hymns, and so we have most beautiful hymns written about the Holy Eucharist. Once when St. Thomas was praying in the church, someone saw the crucifix speak to him, and it said, you've written well of me, Thomas. What do you want? And St. Thomas replied, only yourself, Lord, nothing but yourself. And when he was dying, and they brought in Holy Communion, the Viaticum, he addressed our Lord, and he said, I adore you, my God and my Redeemer. For your honor, I've studied, labored, preached, and taught. And then actually he went on to ask pardon if he'd taught anything that was not in complete conformity with the teaching of the Church. And he said he submitted everything to the Church. But in point of fact, it's the church which has realized how God enlightened him and has followed his teaching. Well, this series, 1987-1988, the first one, the first talk was by Michael Davis on the Holy Eucharist. And you think that in one series, one talk about the Mass might be enough. But the fact that you all come along tonight shows that... Uh, shows that you reckon it isn't enough. 
could sit down. I'll, 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 I'll stay like this until I get tired. The fact that people come along shows that you want to hear more about the Mass. And I think it's like children hearing stories. The other evening I was calling some, at some place and a little boy brought me his storybook and I said, which one do you want me to read? He knew them all. He showed me which one he wanted me to read. And what's more, they don't mind hearing it again and again, but they do want to hear it entire. They don't want to leave anything out. Because a friend of mine calls on her sister sometimes and she has to read to her little nephew. And one day she thought she'd shorten the ordeal and she turned over two pages. She skipped a page and he pulled her up and said, you left a bit out. And she had to say, I'm sorry, and went back and read the page which the boy already knew. So, although we know everything about the Mass, we do like to hear it again. And so I'll try to talk about it faithfully. I'll try to, to omit nothing that's important. If there is, of course, there's a question time. We do love the Mass. I'll say something about it and then I'll suggest ways in which perhaps we could profit from this great gift. To understand the Mass, there are three or four things which we know already. We put them together, and really that gives us as good an understanding of the Mass as we need. Those three or four things, they are, first, what a gift is, then, uh, and so what a sacrifice is, and then that uh, Calvary was a sacrifice, and then the fact of transubstantiation, and then the doctrine of the mystical body, without which we can't understand anything much in our religion. And when those are put together, then we have a good understanding of seats in front. Seats here. We have a good understanding of the Mass. First of all, the idea of sacrifice. Sacrifice is a gift that we make to God. And giving gifts, it's the most sort of basic means of communication that, that we know of. It, it's more basic than, than speech. If a fellow, for instance, uh, thinks that a girl is indeed the most wonderful girl he's ever met, but he's too shy to put this into words, what's he do? He gives her something, flowers or chocolates or something. And the message is got across. I remember once when I was out visiting, talking to a woman, and her little boy, uh, who was sucking a biscuit, came up to me and handed me this biscuit. So I took it and I thanked him and I broke it in half and I gave him back the wet bit and I kept the dry bit for myself and I ate my bit and he ate his bit and it seemed to me now this is the Mass. I never realized how simple the Mass was. We offer God a gift and he accepts it and he gives us back. We offer him Jesus, he accepts him, he gives us back Jesus and we receive Jesus. 
an exchange of gifts it says so much more than can be put into words a story I've told before but it's, it's true and it's, I'll tell it again about a Nigerian I was instructing once and uh, one evening he didn't want the instruction he wanted to talk about his father so he was going to go home on holiday and he hadn't spoken to his father for years they'd had a quarrel something to do with money he said it was his father's fault I said nevertheless even if it was his fault you've got to take the initiative in the reconciliation it's your duty so I said take him a present take him a beautiful crucifix he said his father wasn't a Christian so I said well to take, take him a bottle of whiskey and that's what he did and when he got back to London he said everything had gone off so well and now he was closer to his father than he'd ever been before and you can imagine the scene quite embarrassing in a way but he said I brought him some duty free and the father would have unwrapped it and thanked him and poured out a couple of drinks and they'd had a drink together and that gift and the drink together it, it said more than if he'd made a speech for half an hour and so when we're going to talk to Almighty God what can we say? We are such sinners. He's so holy. He has everything. He knows everything anyhow. What can we say to God? And so it seems instinctive to want to offer God offer God some, some gift and that is sacrifice. I read somewhere that the churches which sprang from the Protestant Reformation are the only real organized churches in the world without sacrifice it does it's very satisfying to be able to give a gift and uh, so people fr from have always found uh, that's the best way to tell God their gratitude or their desire for something or their sorrow for sin so that's the first point that giving a gift is a very basic sort of way of, communic of communicating to people what we have in our hearts and giving a gift to God which you call sacrifice it's a basic way of, of our turning to God to worship him then the third point is that Calvary was a sacrifice in sacrifice you need a priest and you need a victim on Calvary Jesus was the priest he was the victim in the Catechism, in answer to the question, why did our Lord suffer? The answer is, our Saviour suffered to atone for our sins and to purchase for us eternal life. Well, you know that already, that the human race had cut itself off from God, from the sin of our first parents. We were estranged from God as a race. And God himself became one of us that infinite debt infinite because of God's infinite majesty that infinite debt which we'd incurred we poor finite creatures could not repay God himself becomes our cousin and being God every least thing he did, does is of infinite value and so he offers this infinite sacrifice this gift to God of himself to make up for all our sins so Calvary was a sacrifice. Then the next point is transubstantiation. These are all things we know already. 
transubstantiation. Let me just read a bit out of the louders. This marvelous. Uh, this was written for the Mass. This is the sequence of the Mass. The louders in Zion, praise your Savior. What Christ did at the supper, he said that we had to do in memory of him. So taught by his sacred institution, what he instituted, we consecrate bread and wine to, into the victim of our salvation. The teaching given to Christians is that the bread is turned into flesh and the wine into blood. What you don't understand, what you don't see, is strengthened by a lively faith which goes beyond the appearances of things. Uh, under different appearances, which are just signs and uh, not the reality, lie hidden wonderful things. His flesh is food, his blood is drink, yet Christ is there totally under either kind. By the one who receives him, he's not crushed or broken or divided, he's received entire. One may receive him, a thousand may receive him. As many as there are, so many is he. And yet, by being received, he's not destroyed. Good people receive him, bad people receive him, but with a different outcome of life or of death. It's death for the wicked, life for the good. See how, what a different outcome results from an equal reception. He's called the angelic doctor because really this, it would be worth learning Latin simply to be able to appreciate his poetry. It seems incredible that a human being could write such beautiful lines. G.K. Chesterton said that he'd give up all he'd ever written if he could have written this one verse, the verse that comes before the O Salutaris. In another hymn he wrote, uh, being born he gave himself as our companion, a table as our food, dying as our ransom, and reigning in heaven as our reward. And so St. Thomas wrote about the mystery of transubstantiation, and the church has followed his teaching completely. God can allow anyone any sort of temptation. And God can allow people <coughs> to have temptations against the faith and against uh, the real presence of our Lord. For their comfort, he's, he does, he's granted many, many miracles. Some of the miracles, many of the miracles seem to be to strengthen priests in their doubts. The most famous of all, the one at Lanciano in Italy, which happened 1,200 years ago, when a monk at Mass found himself with all sorts of doubts about whether anything had happened at the consecration. And before his eyes, the host, he, it, it, it turned into flesh and the consecrated wine into visible blood. And they're there still after 1,200 years. 
and you can see them. The host, the, the bit that stayed, I suppose, where he was holding it, that stayed with the appearance of wheat, of bread, uh, that has disappeared with time. But the, the most part of it, the major part, is there still. It looks like a, well, really like a very, very thin slice of ham. They can analyze these things by, by light now, and they've analyzed the, the host and the precious blood. They're there. They are human. The host uh, comes from the heart muscle, and they're of the same blood group, of course, and of the same blood group as there is on the Holy Shroud, Shroud of Turin. That's about the most famous, and it's still there after 1,200 years. In England, in East Anglia, there's a woman called Joan the Meatless, who for a long time lived simply on the Holy Eucharist, on her daily communion. And the bishop sent a priest down to check up on this. I mean, it could easily be a sort of fraud to get uh, notoriety. He sent a priest down to check up on it. And this priest took her along one day for her daily communion, an unconsecrated host, but she wouldn't receive it. That was just bread. All she could receive was Jesus. And a priest in Ealing, in Ealing Abbey, told me uh, a woman in their parish, she'd been an Anglican, but even so, as an Anglican, she used to come to daily Mass. And then uh, eventually she became a Catholic, and then some years later she got cancer, and she went to Lourdes a few times, and then she died. And four days before she died, she told this priest that one morning on a weekday when she was at Mass, when the priest held up the consecrated host, she saw Jesus himself looking at her and beckoning her to come forward. And she was terrified, and she got up and ran out of the church. And as she was going out the door, the parish priest was just coming in, and he said to her, well, when are you going to become a Catholic? They all knew she wasn't a Catholic. She said, when are you going to become a Catholic? She said, soon, Father, very soon. And she did, but before she died, she reckoned she had to tell somebody that she'd actually seen our Lord. Mind you, we shouldn't want these things. One of my heroes is St. Louis of France. When in, at, in Mass in the Palace Chapel, and he wasn't at the Mass, uh, the priest held up the host, everyone there saw our Lord. And since he wasn't there, somebody ran off to collect, fetch him. He wouldn't come. He said, I know he's there. Well, I hope I do that too. It's, uh, it's far safer not to, uh, to have these graces. And it's far safer, as St. John of the Cross says, it's far safer if they do come to try to resist them. Because if they're from God, we cannot resist them. But of course, Satan could do any of these things. But God has allowed many, many miracles in connection with the Holy Eucharist. Uh, they seem to be equally divided between, uh, I mean, the reason for them, between people who had doubts, priests who had doubts, and uh, uh, to prevent sacrilege, or as a result of sacrilege. Uh, so there have been many Eucharistic miracles. God can allow anyone to have doubts, but uh, 
in one of the Psalms, he says, make my heart simple. We need to have a simple heart in this. I read a bit out of the imitation. It's the last chapter of the fourth book. You must beware of trying to fathom the mysteries of this sacrament out of useless curiosity, unless you want to be drowned in a flood of doubt. Then he quotes the proverb, he who searches after majesty will be overwhelmed by glory. He says, understanding and inquiry should follow faith, not precede and weaken it. In this holy and most excellent sacrament, it's faith and love that are all important, and they work in secret ways. God who is eternal, infinite, supremely mighty, does great and unfathomable things in heaven and on earth, and there's no understanding his wonderful works. If the works of God could easily be grasped by human understanding, they would not be called wonderful or too great for words. And so in this holy sacrament, what's called for is adoration. And then lastly, to uh, understand the Mass, or to understand devotion to our Blessed Lady, to understand the sacraments, uh, to understand our holy faith, we have to understand something about the mystical body of Christ. It's the central doctrine in St. Paul a doctrine that he learnt on the road to Damascus when he was on his way to persecute Christians and our Lord stopped him and said, you know, with a blazing light, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who is it, Lord? And the voice comes back, it's Jesus whom you're persecuting. And ever after that, every time he looked into the eyes of a Christian, he felt he was meeting the gaze of Christ. When we're baptized, we're baptized into Christ. We are incorporated into Christ, become one with him. At the Last Supper, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches, one living organism, I living in you, you living in me. St. Paul talks about the mystical body, about the body. Christ is the head and... Uh, and we're the rest of the body. Up to the time of uh, about the 11th century, I believe, I read somewhere, the Holy Eucharist was called the mystical body of Christ. <clears throat> and then when Eucharistic heresies started, they thought that this was, they just wanted to call it the body of Christ or the real body of Christ. And that word mystical not being used somehow became attached then to the, to the church and we call the church the mystical body of Christ St. Augustine says Christ has grown now he stretches right across the world so when we're when we're baptized into Christ we are one living thing with him St. Paul says with Christ dying on the cross or rather not I it's Christ who lives in me And we could say, with Christ, I offer the sacrifice of the Mass. Or rather, not I. It's Christ who offers it in me. So now, to put these ideas together, I've drawn a picture. That's it. That's the picture. This is Old Testament. This is New Testament. That's a sheep. That's the victim. It's a Jew taking the sheep along to the temple, 
and saying to the that's the priest saying to the priest now uh, could you please offer this animal for our family's annual sacrifice sorry that's the sheep you see and, and that's the Anyhow, the scene is Old Testament temple. And the Jew takes along this sheep and says to the priest, would you please offer this animal for our family's uh, annual sacrifice, to thank God for the blessings of this past year, to ask his pardon uh, for our sins, to ask his blessing on the year that lies ahead. And the priest says, I'll be glad to do it. Second picture, middle one, the priest is killing the sheep. You see the blood, so he's killing the sheep. Third picture, the sheep on the altar of sacrifice, that's the smoke going up. The sheep is the victim. In the first picture, the victim's going to be killed. In the middle picture, the victim's being killed. In the third picture, the victim has been killed. So if a boy in the family turns up two hours late, no doubt with a good excuse, the father would take him along and say, see that altar sound, see that smoke going up? That's our sacrifice. And the boy would offer the sacrifice to God in the way he should. So whether the victim is going to be killed or is being killed or has been killed, it's all one sacrifice. From the time the Jew hands it over to the priest to the time the last bit of smoke goes up, it's all one sacrifice. I think that's plain, isn't it? Yeah. Now, old, now New Testament, Jesus at the Last Supper. He's just said, this is my body, this is my blood. Jesus on Calvary, dying for us. After the consecration at Mass, our Lord on the altar. In the first picture, the victim, Jesus, is going to be killed. In the middle picture, he's being killed. In the third picture, he has been killed and he's risen again to die no more. But it's all one sacrifice. And God, in his wonderful wisdom and love, has found this way for us to offer the sacrifice of Calvary. Found this way for us to offer the sacrifice of Calvary. The differences between these two, well, obviously, here, there's suffering, there's bloodshed, there's sin, and there's death. There's no suffering or bloodshed or sin or death in the Mass. Again, Calvary was primarily a sacrifice for sin. It was the sacrifice by which we were redeemed. But the Mass is primarily a thanksgiving sacrifice. The word Eucharist means thanksgiving. It's the sacrifice which the redeemed offer to the Father in thanksgiving for all the benefits of redemption. But the, the main difference, which is the, the point here, is that on Calvary, Jesus was the only priest, the only victim. But in the Mass, all of us who have been incorporated into Christ by baptism, we are priests with him, victims with him. It's only the ordained minister who can bring Jesus down onto the altar. But once our Lord's there, all those who are baptized, they offer him to the Father. If you look down on a sort of cruciform church, it's sort of shaped like a human being. And this, the Mass going on, it's packed with people. Christ in the middle, surrounded by all the members of his body, the whole church. St. Robert Bellamin says, the Mass is the sacrifice in which the whole church 
offers herself to the Father in union with her divine head. And uh, Pius XII, I'll turn this round, this mother, that's something Pius XII said, the liturgy is nothing more nor less than the exercise of the priesthood of Jesus Christ, which is a living and continuous reality through all ages to the end of time. We, incorporated into Jesus, are able to do this perfect thing. It's an imperfect world. But because we've been incorporated into Jesus by baptism, we're able to do something which is perfect. How can we thank God enough? We can in the Mass. How can we adequately ask his pardon for our sins? We can in the Mass. And so the Mass, is, it is the perfect thing in an imperfect world. And uh, really, well, we know that if all the blessed in heaven, if our Lady and all the angels and saints stood in front of the Holy Trinity for a hundred years singing hymns of adoration and praise, it wouldn't add up to one Mass. In the Mass we have God worshipping God. From all eternity, God is infinitely adorable. But only with the Incarnation does he have an infinite adorer. And it must have been our Lord's great delight to be able to adore his Father and offer him love from a human heart too. And when he grew up, he really got to read the Sermon on the Mountain and some of his parables to realize how he enjoyed telling people about his Father, how good his Father is, who makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust. The story of the prodigal son. Only God the Son could make up a story like that. If a creature had made it up, people would have said, this is really absurd. It's an exaggeration. But it's God the Son who makes it up to try to reveal to us how good his Father is. But we know that that one lifetime wasn't enough for him to serve his Father and do his Father's will. One heart wasn't enough for him to love his Father with. One mouth wasn't enough for him to praise his Father with. He wanted millions of hearts and lifetimes and mouth with which to praise and love his Father. And so he's created his church. And in baptism, he takes hold of us and he wants in us and through us to continue to praise and love and serve his Father. So, the Mass is the greatest thing there is in all the universe. Now, I put some notes on how to offer Mass. As I said, is the whole church has to, all of us have to offer the Mass. If a little child is offering, say, a flower to her mother, she wouldn't just hold it up and give it. No, she'd hold it up and her eyes would be shining and her, her, she'd be smiling. <coughs> her whole body would be in offering that gift to her mother. And so the whole church engages in offering the Mass. And so everyone there at Mass 
should be should be offering the sacrifice if the queen came to your borough and they had a sort of lottery in the borough about which home she was going to visit and who would be making the presentation and if you got the lucky ticket and she was going to come to your home and you were going to give her the flowers or whatever it was that the borough was going to give to her you'd be quite happy <laughs> and uh, if she came to your home and she was really very pleasant and chatted about your family and everything and you got on fine together and then somebody comes in and says it's time she moved on to the next place so you get up and say goodbye very cordially and she goes out and you suddenly find you look, she, she's still got the flowers on the table you've forgotten to give them to her the one thing you should have done the one thing that you should have done given her this presentation you forgot to do and so when we come to Mass we can say our prayers and we can sing but whatever else we do, we must offer this sacrifice. That is to say, we must remember to offer Jesus to the Father and offer ourselves with him. I remember during the war, I was uh, in a prisoner war camp in Thailand and uh, we, were, we were in sort of long bamboo huts and we had a priest with us, Father Marsden, a wonderful Australian. He was a Maoist father. And there was no chapel there. It was a very primitive. But he'd say Mass every morning. And he'd say it in the operating theater. Well, at the end of one hut, it was sort of screened off. And there was just a table there, six or seven foot long and about a couple of feet wide. And he said, said Mass on that every morning. And one day, I was the first person in for an operation. And I was lying there, feeling a bit gloomy. And then I thought to myself, who was the last person lying on this table? It was Jesus. What was he doing? Offering himself to the Father to make up for my sins and the sins of the world. And so while I was waiting for the anesthetic, I tried to, tried to think the same thoughts. So when we come to offer Mass, we should remember that we do indeed have to offer ourselves and offer Jesus. In this, as I suppose in everything else, Our Lady should be our model. If you think of Mary on Calvary, she was offering this sacrifice in the most perfect way a creature could. Complete unity of hearts. Offering Jesus to the Father all her suffering, she was offering that to complete conformity of will with the will of her son. So when we were at Mass and we get distractions, as people do, maybe think of our Blessed Lady, maybe think of our Lord on the altar. The Mass should be a sort of school of love where from Jesus and Mary we learn how we should offer ourselves to God. The Holy Eucharist being the greatest treasure there is in the universe, everything connected with it, we should try to make it as, as good as we can. Everything to do with the altar should be spotless. I always have a clean purificator for every Mass. A place I was saying Mass once, I went there every day, and I was looking for the clean purificators. 
and I asked the sacristan where they were and she said oh I locked them up in case you know people use them too I thought to myself well I, I wouldn't want that sort of sacristan everything should be as clean and as perfect when it comes to the mass the altar linen uh, that's how the saints the curia of ours he never spent anything on himself he sort of clothed himself out of jumble sails but when he came to to uh, to the church money was no way he spent you know he always got the best he possibly could so when he comes to the altar the sanctuary the church we always want to try to put as much love into it as we can to make it as everything as good as we can our interior dispositions <coughs> Well, we want to get the church clean, but our own hearts. This is what God looks at, first of all. I'll just read the imitation again. And really, the fourth book of the imitation of Christ. It's, it's, uh, it's a beautiful book. And uh, very helpful. The Voice of the Beloved. I am one that loves purity, and my gift is holiness. It's a pure heart that I seek, and there I take my rest. Prepare me a large upper room, furnished, and I will eat the paschal meal at your house with my disciples. If you want me to come to, to you and stay with you, you must rid yourself of the leaven, of the old leaven. You must clean the house of your heart. Shut out, shut out all the world and all the tumult of your sins. Sit down by yourself like a sparrow on the housetop and think over the evil think over your evil deeds and all the bitterness of your soul any lover who's receiving her beloved prepares the best and finest space she can for him for this is a sign of her love but you must realize that you can never do enough by your own efforts to prepare yourself for your beloved not even if you were to prepare for a whole year and never think of anything else it's only through my love and grace that you're allowed to come to my table at all. You're like a beggar invited to a rich man's dinner who can do nothing to repay his kindness but humbly offer his thanks. So we really have to try to perform Mass where I am, we generally say the sorrowful mysteries. And... Uh, it's, it's one way of stopping people chatting and uh, trying to make sure that there is sort of atmosphere of devotion. For our bodies, we know it's a, it's a one-hour fast. If people are sick, there's no fasting at all. And when the church gave that law about one-hour fasting, they said this uh, did not have to be interpreted strictly. So, I mean, if it's five minutes or so within the hour, a person could still should still receive communion but if it's uh, I mean if a person's eaten half an hour before Holy Communion then it's best to abstain obedience pleases God more than anything and so if out of obedience to Holy Church having maybe broken our fast so it's within the hour then I say it's better to abstain confession is only necessary if uh, we're sure there's mortal sin and all the venial sins that we can commit 
They don't make a confession necessary if people come home really tired from work. They don't need uh, medicine. They just need a good meal and a rest. And so to build up our strength again and make up, uh, clean ourselves of, our, of the sins that tend to come into our hearts, uh, Holy Communion is the sacrament for that rather than confession. Though everyone should go to confession, I say anyhow once a month. And if people manage to get to Mass daily, then I'd re- recommend weekly confession. And we should try to receive Holy Communion when we go to Mass. When that Nigerian gave the whiskey to his father, and the father poured out a couple of drinks, if the son hadn't had a drink with him, if he said, no, thanks, I don't like the stuff, or I'm not drinking today, that would have wrecked it. He really did need to have the drink together. And so when we come to Mass, we offer our Father in Heaven, our blessed Lord, he gives us back communion, we should receive our Lord too. So we should always try to be in, in a position to receive our Lord. Thanksgiving, that is very important. Uh, we should never r- rush out of Mass unless we simply have to. When people love each other, they, they hate having to, to, to part. And, and we should always try to stay with our Lord. The whole thing is it's a mystery of faith, and sometimes we feel sluggish, but we need to try to rouse ourselves. Uh, the word altar, I use that sometimes when making a thanksgiving. It's what I teach people when I'm instructing them. A-L-T-A-R uh, tells us of five things we sort of hang our thoughts on. Adore, love, thank, ask, resolve. Adore Jesus, he's come in such a humble way, but we have to adore him. And then love him, sometimes doubtless we behave as though we didn't. And so to tell him that we love him, this is what he wants to hear. Thank him. Well, to thank God the Father and thank our blessed Lord, thank the Holy Spirit, thank each of the divine persons we should, and our blessed lady too, and St. Joseph. Want of gratitude is a very bad thing, especially when it comes to, to God. In the imitation it says, it, want of gratitude dries up the source of grace. So we have to be very careful to thank God. Some churches, they say the rosary straight after Mass, and I confess, I always try to kneel as far away as I can then. I, I like saying the rosary before Mass, but after Mass, I think people mostly want to be left to sort of pray their own way. I'll just read bits out of the imitation. The voice of the Beloved. I freely surrendered myself to God the Father for your sins, with my hands spread out on the cross and my body stripped. I kept nothing back, but let all be transformed into a sacrifice to appease the divine anger. And every day in the Mass, you too, of your own free will, should offer yourself to me as a pure and holy offering with all your powers and affections from, from the very depths of your heart. There's another bit too. 
He says it's not enough to prepare yourself to feel devotion before communion. You must be careful to preserve yourself in that state after receiving the sacrament. Watchfulness afterwards is demanded of you just as much as devout preparation beforehand. For for watchfulness afterwards is the best way of preparing yourself for the gift of further grace. Whereas a man loses all fitness for such a blessing if he immediately gives himself to worldly comforts. Beware of talking too much. Keep yourself apart and enjoy your God. You have him whom the whole world cannot take from you. So, after Holy Communion, we really should try to be with our Lord. I heard of a small girl after her first communion. She was asked what she talked to Jesus about. And she said, I told him a ghost story. She reckoned that everyone enjoyed hearing ghost stories. And so she saved this one up to say, Allah, Lord. But certainly it's a time when, I mean, we have into ourselves, if we'd lived at the same time as, as the apostles, we'd never have had them all to ourselves. Somebody would have butted in, and it must, must have been almost impossible to find him alone. But when we receive him in communion, we do have them all to ourselves. And uh, so we, it's a time we really have to get our money's worth, so to speak. The effect of, of our communions. Now, I think somebody told me in, in theology that there was no real treatise written on the, the, the sacramental graces that received in communion. And we were told that the post-communions in the masses that gave us uh, the church's teaching on the effects of communion. So I started going through the missal, and I typed out a few, but then I, I shan't read more than just this bit here, starting at the beginning of Advent. So these are prayers after communion. The graces that God wants to give us, he wants to give in answer to prayer. And so the church puts the appropriate prayer on our lips, making us ask for those graces that God wants to give us. So this is what we're praying for after our communions. You've given us, Lord, your sacrament to help us in this changing world to love the things of heaven, love the things of heaven and hold fast to what endures forever. Again, in your mercy, Lord, grant our prayer that this sacrament may free us from our faults and make us worthy to celebrate the feast that is approaching. This is Advent. Free us from our faults Holy Communion is not a reward for being good. It's something God's given us to help us persevere in our desire to be good and help make us better. Again, you've given us, Lord, the bread of heaven. Protect us and make this sacrament a continual source of true joy and peace. Again, most merciful Father, You've given us the bread of heaven to renew our strength. Lord God, we pray, by the power of this sacrament, cleanse us from our faults and fulfill our holy desires. In your goodness, Lord, ever guide and strengthen your people. Heal us now and always of our infirmities. And amid the passing pleasures of this world, help us to hasten with full confidence towards heaven. Almighty God, through the sacrament which we have shared, 
forgive us our sins and in your goodness grant us the healing that we need you have refreshed us Lord with the bread of heaven which nourishes our faith enlarges our hope and strengthens our charity teach us to hunger after the true bread of life so that we may learn to live by every word that comes from your mouth so it nourishes our faith enlarges our hope strengthens our charity grant Lord that this sacrament may help us to control our longing for the things of this world and teach us to love the things of heaven grant us Lord our God that this holy sacrament which you've given us for our renewal may heal us now and in time to come you've given us Lord this you've given us Lord your holy sacrament to be our food grant that it may renew our strength and purify us from our old faults so that we may be united with Christ who is the source of our salvation well I only got as far as the first week of Lent and then I thought that's enough but it shows that in this sacrament God gives us everything that we need like the manna which had all manner of delight in its taste and gave people everything they need so the blessed sacrament all whatever our weaknesses are just as the rain comes down and it turns the tulip bulbs into tulips and daffodils to daffodils and nettles into so in a, no, that's not a very good comparison but uh, you know whatever we need we, we get that out of our holy communions and there's one thing that must absolutely baffle our guardian angels because they know that we know that this is God himself and they know that if in every Catholic church Monday to Saturday when the priest came out to give communion besides the symbolium he'd have a stack of 20 pound notes to give to everybody who came up there'd be queues down the road all through the week and yet so really we have to live by faith and if a person physically can get to a weekday mass to miss it well I suppose people can't feel regret in heaven but if they could they would regret having missed communions we should never let ourselves miss a communion we could make in the I listened to the cassette Dr. Gill made here and he said something talking about how the differentiation in races comes about even though we come down from one couple he said we are what we eat meaning that the diets people have can account in some way for physical changes well obviously at the Holy Eucharist we had an old lady come with, to Lourdes with us last year she was well, well into her 70s but her whole face showed that she uh, extraordinary uh, full of the love of God I, I remember I received a girl into the church she's in the show business and when I receive girls into the church I generally take them along to the Opus Dei hostel on uh, Chelsea Embankment so I took her along there and introduced her and people showed her around but when we were coming away afterwards she was a bit glum and she said why are their eyes all shining and my eyes aren't shining mm -hmm. I said to her well they've been going to daily mass for the last two or three years I expect and you haven't been 
but then she started going to daily rashes and so yeah, or two later I said to her, your eyes are shining now. But it's a fact that uh, this bread of life, it, uh, it really does change us. When we eat ordinary food, it turns into us. When we eat Christ, he tends to turn us into him. And our religion, you know, it has many mysteries. Surely the, the, the chief mystery is that God has such an extraordinary weakness for us poor sinners. That is so amazing. And the only way I can account for it is the fact we're all related to our blessed lady. I suppose if a fellow's deeply in love with a girl, he's sort of put up with her family, even if he didn't like them all that much. And... Uh, that God should go to such trouble over us and want to come to us in communion, very mysterious. We'll never understand it. But even if we don't, God wants us to, to he wants us to come to communion. Then making visits. Though I must see the time. I've been going on too long, I think. Stop. i better stop now. We can let you have another five minutes. Well, uh, finish that. Yes, I'll just finish this bit making visits we should not pass a church if we can possibly uh, go in to adore our Lord if it's locked then at least to uh, say a prayer uh, and bless ourselves when we go past I'm in a bit of a quandary actually because there's a church around our way Anglican church and it's a sort of ecumenical thing now and there's mass said there and I suppose the reserve but every time I go past I haven't blessed myself I suppose it's unecumenical of me I apologise to our Lord but you know to, to be passing an Anglican church and then bless yourself <laughs> I don't know quite what to do but we should go in I mean, if you were in hospital and you were uh, from your bed you would see a good friend of yours go past every day to work and then in the evening come back and never came to visit you really you, you'd be hurt our blessed Lord knows what time we've got and he does want us to just to go to adore him we want to spend our whole eternity in his company adoring him so we must make ourselves find our happiness in his company like that In, in the seminary we had an infirmary and there was an old brother, brother Jared and he used to spend most of the time in the infirmary chapel and somebody once asked him did he pray all the time? He said no, sometimes I just read out like read out loud to him from the Daily Mail he just wanted to spend his days there with our Lord so really we have to do what we can uh, I'll just say on this point though that some people say you shouldn't say litanies of Our Lady or the rosary in front of the blessed sacrament exposed. That strikes me as being so funny. I mean, the object of the exercise surely is to please Jesus. That's what we're in business for, to please Jesus. What could give him greater pleasure than for us to be in front of him telling him that we think his mother's great and how much we love her? So, we have to thank God for this great gift he's given us.
you very much, Father. Thank you very much for your talk, which was so uplifting. I hope it hasn't left everybody so so sort of filled with um, love that they won't ask me any questions or ask Father any questions. It's always very difficult when the speaker turns to me and says, uh, shall I finish now? And I always have this terrible feeling that if I say yes, we're going to spend the next half an hour in silence. <laughs> but anyway, we usually start slowly and then it warms up. Who would like to start? Don't forget that um, we do like the questions on the, on the tape as well as the speaker. And if you'd put your hand and wait for Cecil to come with the microphone, it would be a great help. Father, you began by telling us about devotion to the Blessed Sacrament through the Feast of Corpus Christi. I've just been reading the history of the Guild of the Blessed Sacrament, which as you know was started in the 16th century, to atone for the sins committed against the Blessed Sacrament in that period. And reading, it shows how the Guild diminished, and another Pope would come along and he would revive it. And several popes asked that the guild, or rather ordered, that the guild should be established in every church in the whole world. I'm wondering, Father, whether you think that at this time, with the atrocities that are being um, perpetuated against the Blessed Sacrament, isn't it time that we need a revival of the Guild of the Blessed Sacrament. And lastly, Father, I read, but I don't know in which letter from the present Holy Father, a few years ago, he asked hierarchy, priests and laity to bring back devotion to the Blessed Sacrament by processions, 40 hours devotion, benediction, and so on. But I'm wondering, Father, do you know whether there has been a revival in this country of devotion to the Blessed Sacrament outside the Mass? Thank you, Father. Not that I know of. I, I never knew that was the reason for the start of the Guild of the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, so really it sounds... As, yes, it really should be started up again because it has really died, died out. I've seen no increase there are individual priests certainly who, uh, who who do show their love by having all these by having 40 hours and so on but uh, it seems to have died out altogether when I was in the seminary I remember every church had a list of all the uh, churches in the diocese when they were having 40 hours and people on their days off they'd try to get along if it was anywhere near but I haven't seen that for many years now. Don't you agree, Father, that devotion to the Blessed Sacrament outside Mass is a great help to us understanding the Mass? It is, it is. And uh, really it's up to the, to the people in the parish, I suppose, to ask the priest, uh, you know, the, couldn't we have adoration? Couldn't we have holy hours and when the priest uh, when they have to shut the, the church during the day because of vandalism I'd have thought it'd be up to the laity to get together and work out a sort of 
rotor of people who'd come at a door to make sure the church would never be empty. And if they were able to approach the parish, we'd say, look, here are people who've guaranteed they'll come at, you know, we'll fill up the week. Couldn't we have the church open again? I just thought that that was the way to... It's a, it's a terrible shame to find churches shut. But it's, it's up to the laity, to, I suppose, to try to get, remedy that. There's a lady at the back there. Did you have your hand up? Was there a hand up? Ah, oh, there we are. To sit down. I only want to answer the lady, you know, who said about the Blessed Sacrament girl that um, there is such um, group here in the uh, Westminster. We have, um, I belong to it. And you can be enrolled. It's uh, every Tuesday after Mass. In the cathedral. Thank you. In the, yes. this here in the cathedral. Great. You Great. will be. Uh, you will ask. You know the as a woman there. You know who is the um, president of it, and then you can be enrolled. Yes. Thank, Thank you. you. What worries me, Father, is you've hardly received our Lord in Holy Communion before you're jumping up to say some prayers and night prayers and singing. What time do you get to speak to our Lord? Those are supposed to be the, the intimate time for speaking to Him, instead of which it's one long distraction. And I'm terrified myself because I can't swallow the host immediately. It remained at the top of my palate, and I am very afraid of anybody coming to speak to me, leave alone to sing. I don't think anyone's obliged to sing. They just stay there kneeling like a woman I know. When it comes to the sign of peace, she just kneels there, hunched up. You know, everything in her shows she's, you know, she's not going to cooperate. Uh, I belong to the church of pre-Vatican II I don't believe in receiving the precious blood because I was taught the body, blood, soul and divinity of our Lord was present in that sacred host and on one occasion I was benediction and third order of St. Francis and as Father elevated the host I saw blood on it and I said that is the answer I'm not going up to receive the precious blood Yes. Why have they changed it now and brought along all these uh, uh, yes. uh, people drinking uh, out of the chalice? Yes, yes, yes. they somehow want to make us exactly like the Anglicans. Yes, exactly. And, uh, and some places, some lady was, said she went to an, a Catholic, went to an Anglican church and took bread in her hand and received it. Where's her faith? Lady here, and we'll come back to you next. Lady here. Um, just two things, Father. Actually, following this lady, I thought Vatican II, um, the Sacred College of um, Liturgy, said that one can receive under both kinds on certain special occasions for, for certain good reasons, and it, you know the priest would would introduce that and and. Um, so I, I've, I mean, I, I never thought of it as being Anglican, that, that, that would be that. And the second part of my question was, um, how would one approach the priest of one's own parish 
who is now preferring to say Mass in the hall, and the church is locked up, which means the Blessed Sacrament's locked up, um, what I'm really asking is how do we go about reopening this? The reason being for that apparently is heating. Yes. Uh, you know, whether that's a good reason, but why heat the hall? You know, I, I'm just wondering, our Lord's, you know, isolated more. That, that would be the, the, those two questions. About the first. Uh, yes, I mean, way back at a wedding, uh, they received Holy Communion under both kinds. Uh, I think it's rather a sort of, it's, it's divisive, because it's all right in this country where people have the money, but what about a place like ours in Nigeria, where a man would, he had about 22 villages, 23 villages, and they'd save up uh, for some months, and get, then get him a taxi, so he'd come out and say Mass, and there'd be, let's say, 700 there coming to, to the sacraments. Well, to buy enough wine to receive communion of both kinds, it'd be out of the question. And so it's a sort of bourgeois thing that cuts out the poor straight away. Uh, that, that's also the danger of how, how much to consecrate. Uh, at the Chrism Mass in Southern Cathedral every year, I go, and sometimes there's, uh, well, well over half a pint, there's only about, what, maybe not, about 150 priests there, but they can't calculate right, and they have a, a, a lot of the precious blood left over. They consecrate too much wine, and so they have to take around priests drink it. Well, and then there's just the sheer logistics of it. Church, I say, mass out in Nigeria, about between four and five thousand people at the mass, and there were five of us giving out Holy Communion, two priests and three deacons. It took best part of an hour giving out communion, well, if there'd been the precious blood as well, it'd be just out of the question. Impossible. And so it's a cosy little thing where not many people come to Mass and there's no shortage of money. And, uh, and the second question, I think it's a matter of sort of laity power or laity liberal, whatever you call it. When I, the, the people in the parish, surely they could get together and uh, find out how much it costs to heat the church and say, look, we'll pay for this, but really we'd prefer to have Mass in the church. So it's also with, you know, going, with going in the sacristy, and all sorts of things happening, and one doesn't quite know how to deal with all this. It's in one's own parish. People do ring me up about this sometimes, and yes. if, if, it's, if they're too distressed, I say, well, you're obliged to go to Mass on Sundays, but you're not obliged to go to your parish church. You are obliged to support your parish priest uh, financially. And so maybe at Christmas and Easter, put a sort of send him five pounds. Uh, but then, as long as you're at a Mass in some Catholic church, but if it's too distressing, it's, if it really is, if it's upsetting, to go to one's own church, then I generally recommend people to go somewhere else, even get a minibus and sort of take a few of the friends. It, it's, it's very sad that. But anyhow, it, whatever it is, it's a valid mass, even if the priest himself has, lo has lost the faith. It will still be a valid mass, but simply because he's a priest and he's doing what the church says. So one never need have any anxiety about the sacrament.
The lady there has been trying for a long time. That's the one, yes. The children at Fatima were um, taught the prayer to the Holy Trinity, offering up the body, blood, soul and divinity of Christ, present anywhere in the world. Um, do you think that's a way of exercising the priesthood of the laity as well? Yes, I, one can offer up the Holy Eucharist. One can join spiritual with masses being offered all over the world, yes. Uh, yeah, sure, but I mean the main way I suppose is to be at mass and then be offering the uh, offering the the sacrifice at mass. Yeah, one can like you can make spiritual communions any time. You can uh, offer the mass. Sure, unite yourself with all the masses being offered in the world. Offer them to God. Father, at the end of mass, we normally stand for the blessing. There's a church I go to that uh, when we have a blessing of a saint, they ask us to kneel down. And also when we have the blessing of St. Blair, the candles, we kneel down to get that blessing. So why is it we stand to get the blessing of our Lord? Well, where I say Mass, everyone's trained to kneel. <laughs> <laughs> because... Uh, <coughs> when, when we get a priest blessing, it, it's the blessing of Christ. Uh, just like you say, this is my body and it's the body of Christ. So when a priest gives us his blessing, it's the blessing of Christ. And so it's really it's fitting to kneel. It's very strange when you're about to bless them, they all stand up. But uh, I don't know. I should say devil's behind the whole thing ultimately. There's a lady. Can we go back again? This way. Thank you. St. Louis de Montfort had a practice of um, adoring our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament where no one else went, where it was very cold. And um, I wondered about that. Had you heard of that? Um, to really choose a church where our Lord wasn't adored. I think he did. I think I read that once. And uh, I did have another point, but it's gone. It's flashed. It's just gone. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It'll come back. I, it'll come back. It's the sort of thing he would do, certainly. Um, to the front, Cecil, please. Sorry. Um, are priests obliged to say the Mass facing the congregation? nowadays and, and if they're not what, why do they do it? What pressure are they under to do it? In uh, Southwark Diocese uh, I heard that uh, every new church, I mean the bishops made uh, all the uh, altars be turned around or you know, new altars built so the priests can say mass facing the people but in the, in the missal, the new Latin missal, the new one uh, the Latin assumes the priest is saying is mass with his back to the people versus that problem turn it, turning round, turning to the people he does whatever he is. so uh, in the actual missal approved by the council or after the council it does assume still there that the priest is saying is mass with the back to the people 
and so it's it's the liturgical enthusiasts who uh, have achieved this. But there is no real obligation on them to do it. Well, if the if the bishop says that uh, they've got to, they they have to obey the bishop. Actually, where I am, this it's just a little chapel, and so uh, actually our own archbishop's private chapel. Uh, the altar is still against the wall, so when he says mass in his private chapel, he's all right. <laughs> the father, the, the the mass at the oratory is never said in any way but facing from the people, isn't it? The priest has always got his back to the. Uh, Except the second mass in the evening, isn't it? They bring down an altar. Do they really? Yes. Oh. I haven't seen that quite recently, but I have stayed, and they brought an altar in many cases. To yes. Sorry, just going back to that point, if you say it ultimately depends on the say-so of the bishop, have any of the bishops given any uh, good reason for, for these changes at any time in the past? They do tend to act in a collegial sort of way, don't they? I don't like to sort of... Uh, it's so, you know, I tend to sin by getting just too negative about bishops. Uh, they've got to answer it just like we have to answer for our own sins. But uh, these liturgical pundits, I've known one or two, they never seem to be people of prayer. And I don't think they realize the, uh, the level of prayer to which so many of the laity have come. They don't realize that the laity enjoy being left alone with our Lord in silence. And there's such a deep personal relationship between the individual Catholic and our Lord. They want to be left alone to enjoy that. They think that unless there's something sort of going on, nothing's going on. And I think it's like a, a bloke, somebody goes along to some violin concert, and uh, while the person's playing on the violin, they're sort of tap, tapping on the seat in front, mm -hmm. keeping time. Feel a bit mad with them. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a violin, you feel there's dead silence and intense participation. But these people don't seem to realize that, I think. They don't realize that you can be utterly silent and motionless and yet participating fully. And so they make you want to jump around. Uh, this is just a, a simple question I was asked, but I was unable to answer it. That uh, in some African countries, uh, sometimes they have no wine. We have to import from uh, other countries, like my own country in Kenya. We import from Israel. Sometimes, uh, due to the government regulations, uh, there is no wine. But a priest asked me, what were you taught in, uh, in the seminary? Uh, what content uh, of wine should, uh, when one is saying mass, what content of alcohol should it contain? Do you know any uh, canon law or moral theology about that? No, I don't. I don't, but uh, in a case like that, uh, what some people do, they import 
raisins. They import raisins. You know, currency is dried grapes. And they soak them until they sort of fill out. And then they crush them. And they make their own wine in that way. So I thought, if, if you can't import wine, or if it's too expensive, they should just uh, import dried grapes from us anywhere and uh, make their own wine. Uh, that's what uh, a Dutchman told me, they did that somewhere. But that would be quite lawful. Uh, it has to be just uh, fermented grape juice, that's all, and then it's wine, but undiluted with water. So, I mean, if, if you uh, let the raisins fill out, and uh, so they, you know, they got, they're, they're moist, then you crush them, that is grape juice. And then let it ferment, then you've got wine. So we don't have uh, any laid down rule, the content of uh, alcohol, which should not exist no. a certain given... Uh, no, no, I don't think so. No, it, it just has to be pure wine. Uh, but uh, ordinary altar wine, I think they fortify, uh, like sherry is fortified, because let's say there's a convent that they get mass once a week and there's central heating, and an ordinary bottle of wine left in that, it'd go off, it'd turn to vinegar. And so I think uh, ordinary altar wine is fortified, but with... Uh, grape alcohol it has to it all has to be from the grape with no water added and but I mean obviously German wine or wine made from vines grown in this country have much lower alcohol content than than wine that comes from Cyprus or or, or Israel that's why I mean, in, in Israel and in our Lord's time they always put water in the wine is so strong and that's why we do so I don't think there's any law laid down. It just has to be pure wine, uh, undiluted with water. Okay. So the alcoholic content is um, is not relevant. No, no. And and priests, for instance, who have a who are allergic people who are sort of alcoholic types, and who are allergic to any alcohol, then uh, they obviously uh, try to get a wine. Uh, the very, uh, you know, the lightest wine, uh, low, as low alcohol content as possible, and have very little. So, so I don't think the alcohol content has got anything to do with that, as long as it's pure wine from the grape. Father, to go back to the precious blood, um, I wondered about this when communion of, under two kinds um, came into effect and everyone seemed to be having it and then I read a revelation to um, a mystic in Germany, a lady in the 60s and one of the things our Lord said to her he explained about the flesh and the blood he said if you cut flesh there is blood because the Lanciano host had blood in it as we know he said the water from my side, the, the blood the blood, the wine, is the blood from my side, which is for the strengthening of my priests. That is what he told her. You have the flesh and the blood in the host. My priest has the blood from my side for his own sp spiritual strength, which he needs far, far more than even you do. That was what he said to her.
what is your opinion, Father, of the lay people going to the tabernacle and taking out the Blessed Sacrament? Well, that gives me the creeps. Uh, I think it's very distressing. And uh, I can't see how it's going to strengthen faith. Uh, when people don't genuflect, and if we, if we don't behave the way we believe, we can't believe the way we behave. That's why the church hedges this mystery around with so many safeguards, silk curtains, lights, locked doors, and the lock, and the key's got to be somewhere really safe. Uh, and then multiply genuflections. I say the old mass once or twice a week, and this little boy, he's not made his first communion, he says my mass, and he's been taught when he genuflects, ring the bell. Well, in the, in the new mass, you only genuflect about twice. But in the old mass, of course, you genuflect a whole lot. He had a field day. He was holding the, <laughs> he was holding the bell until the whole mass and ringing. <laughs> he had a great time. But with lay people taking the Blessed Sacrament, oh, it's, it's, I, think, I cannot see how it's going to strengthen faith. And when my friends ask me about it, I say, if are you, I, I would say no. So, uh, I, I can't see any good that's come from it. Run over there, then we'll come up to you. Just um, think, since they removed the altar rails, I think reverence has, has become lacking or careless when we receive the Blessed Sacrament. I think people were quite happy, you know, to go on their knees to receive our Lord. And I think just great act of reverence there. But now, it, uh, I don't think the laity wanted that altar rails removed. It's just thrust upon them. Yes, yes it, it seems diabolic. They want to do everything to destroy faith. And when I see kids, these children coming up to receive communion in their hands as they're eating peanuts, I, they just don't believe. I, I can't imagine they believe. Uh, Michael Davis said they had a survey of school leavers from, and they found from Catholic schools they found that 2% are still practicing that's the result of this it's, it's mass apostasy just another thing really in my own church as uh, Ealing Abbey on Christmas Eve people had um, brought cans of beer and had a party outside the ch church while uh, midnight mass was going on and some of them even entered the church and, and I believe um, broke into uh, I think where there was money for uh, one of the statues and that was broken into at midnight mass yes yes and I think some of those were yes. Catholic boys yes now we have to do everything we can to emphasize reverence for the Holy Eucharist uh, if a priest refuses to give communion to somebody kneeling down, and I've no priest refused to give communion to somebody kneeling. Very distressing. Uh, I don't know what you can do, except I think if I were in that position, I'd just do a good genuflection and then stand up and receive our Lord. Never would I receive it in my hand. I, I see people receiving in their hand, and I always look to see if there's a fragment there. But... Uh, it's resulted in a great deal of objective sacrilege, quite apart from the witchcraft. There's a massive amount of witchcraft now. And uh, it, it's made so easy to steal the consecrated hosts. 
With regard to respect for the Blessed Sacrament, somebody earlier on mentioned the fact that uh, uh, people stand when uh, we're accustomed to genuflecting. Uh, for example, at the Blessing Mass. Um, my wife has uh, become somewhat exclusive, or was, in our area in Hertfordshire from the point of view that she goes to many churches and goes to Mass very frequently and she's adopted a practice which has in fact helped people have the courage uh, to kneel when they go up to receive and also to genuflect or go on one knee anyway when receiving the blessing and she has noticed and uh, quite a number of people who who now follow her uh, with regard to going to communion and things like that. And uh, one or two of the people have in fact mentioned that uh, th there is no more the reticence on the part of the, the priest with regard to those who wish to kneel um, when receiving. I think one of the things that one must be careful about is that when one does kneel, you should really kneel slightly to the side so that you can't be accused of holding up those who wish to receive standing. Yes. Yes. In churches it often happens that whatever the person in the front row does, people behind do as well. Mm. And so if a person, uh, if, if you go up to the front and then just, when it comes to the blessing, just kneel down, you'll find a load of people will just kneel down behind you. Twice it's happened to me when I, I had to get up because the priest was elderly and I thought perhaps that was a good reason. The second time was the priest said, um, just get up. And I said, but it is the Lord, you know. And he came after me after Mass, came to me after Mass and was quite cross about it all. But weeks later he came back and asked me to pray for him. So... You know, I think the continual kneeling's good. Um, I've weakened and I do the genuflection and stand. So, uh, you know. But the other thing about the uh, extraordinary ministers for the Eucharist, because I was, I'm teaching catechism, I was asked. And I asked a good priest and he said, no, don't. Gave me the book Inestimabli Donum. And I read this carefully and discovered in it that in fact it's own extraordinary ministers are only for extraordinary situations and in fact I think that this isn't widely known and wondered perhaps what we ought to do about it you know there's so much we could do and we're not doing I don't know whether we're I'm getting weak I can speak for myself that uh, it's conditional reflex like Pavlov's dogs you know you get into it um, and, and the other thing, I just want to say, your, your views on the Mass were so beautiful, and it just suddenly came to me, does it matter very much if the priest is facing the altar or the wall, or facing the congregation, if one has all, all the <coughs> interior dispositions and all, you know, what you were saying, does it really matter? It just, just came to me as a thought, because the, the pre-Vatican II Mass was always facing 
you know, the wall, uh, back to the people. And I, I'm of the opinion that I'm not sure about that. I think it does, that doesn't bother me. It is much easier for the priest to have his back to the people because he can pray. Uh, and uh, also, uh, it uh, helps submerge the personality of the priest. Uh, it, it's Christ who's the high priest at every Mass. And in the old days, the whole personality of the priest was somehow submerged. He should hide as much as he can behind Christ. But I remember a thing Father Howell wrote. He said the priest has to get across his personality to the people. Uh, and I thought, dear me, is that what the Curie of Ars thought or St. Pius X? Uh, that the whole purpose of the old liturgy was to hide the personality of the priest so that it, it's Christ. It's easier to realize it's Christ who's a chief celebrant at every Mass. So that's why it's easy, I think, to have a priest uh, with his back to you so that you're not distracted by his mannerisms or anything. I just wondered if, about that in Calvary. You know, just that point about Calvary, if one's thinking of Calvary, that Christ, I suppose that's different because Christ will be Christ, whereas the priest takes on Christ at the Mass. So that's May I just come in there for a moment? Father, I'm interested in this. Is there not a difference, a distinction between the part of the Mass, the um, opening part of the Mass, the ministry of the Word, where it is natural for the priest to face the people, to give his homily, to greet the people, and then the, what we used to call the canon of the Mass, after the offertory, the Eucharistic prayer. Then, I think there's a real reason for the priest to face the altar. I can never forget my first Holy Communion books. And I was very taken with a picture, which I've seen since many times. And the priest is holding up the consecrated host at the elevation. And then behind, the priest is facing the throne of God. And there sits Our Lady, crowned, and there will be angels and saints are in front. And the priest is offering the host. I think it changes the whole thing if the priest turns round and offers it to the people. Well, part of the, uh, the reason for the, ch for the change is that they want to, uh, almost, they, w they want us to forget that it's a sacrifice. You read the books that children get, nothing about sacrifice it's a meal and, uh, and so they sh show pictures of our Lord of the Last Supper and everything but the fact that it's, it's primarily a sacrifice it's a sacrifice before it's, it's a meal uh, that is, is, is not stressed and I think that's partly behind it and there we must leave the Pro Fide Forum the chairman was John Finnegan <laughs>